And let me tell you something. If you look back in the last 2,000 years, so you can tell me so many Jews were killed and all those tragedies. This is only one part. Do you know how many Pesachs we had? How many Simchus Torahs? How many Purims? How many weddings? How many Brissen? And you know something else? How many thousands of books we came out with? So sure, there are a lot of reasons to be sad, but there are millions, millions of reasons to be absolutely ecstatic and, and, and gewalt. You know, it's just, it is unbelievable what's happening to us Jews. I mean, can you imagine after 2,000 years we go back to the Holy Land? For this alone, you could dance for two million years. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites with Yehudi Gebru here with another episode. And uh, very appropriate for both the upcoming Shabbos Nachamu. And uh, it's going to speak about a much lighter topic after this intense Tisha B'Av season. Um, speak a little bit about Rav Shleimah Kalbach and his early years and how it developed. And I originally thought of speaking about it, I didn't even realize that it was right before Shabbos Nachamu, which is very appropriate, the singing, the dancing that we do, and also it's a tuba of, Tesvav of, which in Israel is a holiday, it's called Chag Ha'ahava, the holiday of love, which is roughly equivalent to Valentine's Day in, in the United States and other countries. And definitely it's appropriate for someone who truly loved every Yid, no matter who they were and where they came from. His uh, shul in San Francisco was called the House of Love and Prayer. He once said if there was enough, um, just to connect Tisha B'Av to this, if there was enough uh, Jew in a person for the Nazis to hate him, then there's enough Jew in that person for me to love him. So he was a person who was Mole Ahava, someone who was full of love. So how did he come about? Where did he come from? And there's an old saying amongst the uh, Yeki Jews, the German Jews, that the ABC of the German rabbinic families is Auerbach, Bamberger, and Karlbach. That's the ABC. Those are enormous uh, rabbinic families. Large percentage of the rabbis throughout Germany were from these three families. So Shlomo Kalbach came from this rabbinic family, very, very prestigious uh, and old, ancient rabbinic family, a lot of branches. Um, interestingly enough, the Bambergers, the Auerbachs are the same way. Um, we mentioned uh, on a recent, a couple of years ago, I was on, uh, not recent, uh, a couple of years ago, I was on one of my tours to Germany with a group, and we went to the... Uh, Jewish cemetery in Frankfurt to be by Rav Shamshinafal Hirsch to hear about his story and to daven there. And right near Rav Shamshinafal Hirsch, which is of course in a separate cemetery from the main Frankfurt Jewish cemetery because Rav Shamshinafal Hirsch fought for a long time to separate the Orthodox community from the mainstream uh, Jewish community, Austrit. And right near him is buried a couple of Bambergers. So one of the people in the group asked me, how are the Bambergers here? I thought the Würzburger Rav was... Rabbi Zeligman Bamberger um, was opposed to Austrit. 
he was opposed to removing oneself from the mainstream Jewish community, and he remained inside the community. And here the Bambergers are buried next to Reb Shamshun of Hirsch, not him, relatives of his. And of course, I explained with this same line, the ABC of German rabbinic families. It's a huge, massive family. There's Bambergers all over. Don't worry about it. They get themselves everywhere. So it's the same thing with the Karlbachs. Uh, Reb Shleim Karlbach's father was a Rav in Berlin and later in Austria. He had uncles who were big, famous Rabbanim, Emanuel Karlbach, Yosef Karlbach, who was very famous, the last chief rabbi of Hamburg, who was killed by the Nazis. It was a very, very large family. Um, his father had many siblings. Most of them were Rabbanim. And uh, some of them got out before the war. Emanuel Karlbach was actually involved in the founding of Agudis Yisrael also. Um, very famous and prestigious family with uh, um, branches all over Yosef Karlbach. Uh, who was killed by the Nazis, had a few children who got out, who survived also. Uh, one of them is named Shloyma Karlbach. He's a rabbi, Shloyma Karlbach, a big Mechaber Sfarm, a big Talmachachem. I believe he's even still alive. He was Mashgiach in Chaim Berlin. So you're talking about it's a very um, widespread family, uh, very involved in Rabbanus, and they escape. Shloyma Karlbach and his family he had a twin brother and a sister, and they escape um, the Nazis in Austria um, to the United States in 1939, almost at the end. Actually, they had spent a, a few months in Lithuania at the time. And a interesting uh, story. They again, they were a very well connected rabbinic family, so they had uh, they uh, knew the Panevijerov, and they had come to Lithuania for some sort of occasion of the Panevizhirov, some sort of simcha of the Panevizhirov, and a couple of family members of the Karlbachs got sick, so they were stuck in Lita for several months. Shalom Karlbach was bar mitzvah age at that time, so he went to the Panevizh Yeshiva in Panevizh, ironically, for a couple of months while his family was in Lita. So he has the Litvish connection there as well. So the family moves to America. His father becomes a rabbi in the Upper West Side on 79th Street and the position that he eventually took over um, together with his twin brother um, when his father died in 1967. So that became the Karlbach Shul on the west side. It was a steller that he inherited from his father. And he he um, goes to yeshiva. He is sent to yeshiva. Again, he's from a rabbinic family, and he's very talented, very smart, a big masmid. And he goes to Tervedas, which was one of the first yeshivas around at that time. Tremendous um, um, potential that he had there. He becomes a star of the yeshiva. He's close with the Rosh Yeshiva at the time, Reb Shleimah Hyman. He's a Talmud of Shleimah Hyman. Interesting side note is that at the time, he one of the people who he studied with in the Tervedas yeshiva during those years, during the early 40s, was um, Ben-Sian Shanker. And Ben and Shanker was close with the Majitzarebbe. He had gotten close with the recently arrived Majitzarebbe, who had just come recently, Reb Sholyadidi Taub. And Reb and Shanker introduced Karlbach to Majitzanigunim. And that's what got him into songs and Nigunim. And in the early years, he only started composing songs in the late 40s, early 50s, Reb Karlbach. In the early years when he would sing, it was Majitz Nigun and Dafka, not uh, not his own. 
And not only that, but in his later years, he would say that because of that the formative musical education that he got from Insane Shaker and the exposure to Majitz, there's not been a single song that he ever composed that was not influenced by Majitz, which is a very, very powerful thing to say. So we have the entire wealth, the beauty of all the songs of Shlomo Kaubach. We have to also thank Majitz for that also. And he moves on from Tervidas in 1943 or 44, um, less than 20 years old. He's born in 1925, so he's less than 20 years old when he when he is one of the founding Talmidim of Beis Medrash Gavaya Lakewood. Ryan Cutler had arrived in America just before, and he was one of the Tervidas. Is famously sent, Shagafaibel famously sent his top guys to Rabaran, uh, knowing that it would damage the Tervidas, but he said, my, my goal is not to build my own institution, my goal is to spread Torah in America, so we have Rabaran Cutler here, and he needs the best, so I'm sending him my best guys. So one of those best guys who he sends is Rav Shlomo and he remains in Tervidas for over five years, and he becomes very close with Rabaran Cutler, very close Talmud, in a, in a newspaper interview, which I read recently, someone sent me, um, a very knowledgeable fellow and professional researcher, he sent me this uh, fantastic article that, that is an interview that Kaubach gave in the 1970s, and he speaks about the dearth of rabbinic leadership in his time, and he longs with nostalgia back to the days when we had true rabbinic leadership, and the example he gives is his Rebbe, Rabarin Cutler. He said he was a real leader, he was a real Rav, he was someone who really cared, and he was a towering personality, Talmud Chacham. And he definitely uh, kept uh, that, that awe that he had of his Rebbe, Rabarin, throughout his life. It's inscribed on his Matseva as one of the closest Talmidim of Rabarin Cutler. And he was there in Lakewood for over five years. And he did have... This talent, he had a way with people, he um, was charismatic personality, he definitely had loads of musical talent, and he was also searching. This is someone who grew up as a yekka, and he moves on to the Litvish yeshiva world, and eventually comes closer to Hasidus, and he draws close in 1949 to the free Rebbe of Chabad, the Rayats. And he gets a nice shaykhs with him. He gets drawn to Hasidus, the Hasidus of Chabad. And the, the Friedrich Rebbe sends him to colleges in New York, like Columbia, other colleges, I think even Brandeis, maybe even outside New York, to Boston, um, to teach Hasidus and, and to, to spread it to the Jewish students. So essentially, he becomes one of the first shlichim of Chabad, not only of Chabad, but he's from the Friedrich Rebbe before even the the last Rebbe, Rebbe Nachem Mendel, became the Rebbe. Already he was, uh, Kaulbach was already teaching Hasidus and being a shliach on college campuses. He eventually, in 1949, he leaves Lakewood and joins up not only with the Chabad movement, but with the Chabad institutions, and he fully comes close to Lubavitch. So he's going through a transformation, and he remains in Chabad through the early 1950s. And he, he becomes very close with the Lubavitch Rebbe, with the last Lubavitch Rebbe. And, and um, he makes him a shliach to go to college campuses and to teach Hasidus. And he sings with them. And, and he starts composing Nigunim at this time. He starts composing his own songs. 
sings other songs, like I said, Majitz, and and he is a full-fledged, uh, almost a full-fledged member of Chabad, but at this time he already starts to strike out on his own. And in 1954, he actually leaves Chabad. He decides he needs to be independent, he needs to be on his own. He sees that the way he needs to reach out to people is not going to be the, exactly the way that Chabad and the Rebbe wants him to. He feels he has his own derech and his own way. And it comes to a very um, heart-wrenching decision that he has to strike out on his own and do things his own way. And he really expressed it later on in his life that there he was, standing alone. He no longer had Lakewood. He no longer had Chabad. And, uh, and uh, he was alone. And the establishment wouldn't accept him. In Lakewood, they were very upset um, till today, it's a dispute that he leave Lakewood on his own accord to join Chabad, or was he asked to leave Lakewood? And it uh, doesn't seem to be a clear or foregone conclusion in either way. Perhaps it was mutual, but they were very upset with him. Here was their star Talmud. He got smicha um, to become a Rav. He was going to follow in the footsteps of his ancestors, of the Yekesh Rabbanim. He was going to follow in the footsteps of his great Rashi Yeshiva, Rabbi Shleim Hyman, Rabbi Cutler to become a Rashi Yeshiva, to become a Gadol Yisrael, and, uh, and 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 here he is. First, he becomes Hasidish. He joins Chabad. Then it's even worse. He's into singing and Kiruv and going to secular college students and drawing them close. And he seemed to have fallen off the deep end. What's going on with our future Gadol Yisrael? I remember speaking to. Um, an old, old Yekisha Jew, several years ago, um, she was in her 90s, and I mentioned Kaubach, and she got all emotional, imagine like 60, 70 years later, says, I knew him back then, and and I knew his family, and she had come from Hamburg, so she knew his uncle, Rebesef Kaubach, and she said, he could have been such a godel, and like a, you know, like the way Yekis say it, he could have been such a godel, and he look what happened. And uh, I said it. I think he became a guttle in his own way. That yeah, but he could have become a regular guttle, and that's what they were expecting of him. So that kind of changed when he his his break with Lakewood happened. Till today in Lakewood, it's a sensitive issue, and the only songs they would sing of Karlbach are from his early days. The songs that Urban Cutler himself. Liked such as Lule Seiroscha Shashuai, which there's a load of mythology and legend attached to that song, and how he sang that to Rabaran, so much so that it's hard to separate fact from fiction about what actually was the interaction between between him and his Rebbe Rabaran Cutler in regards to that song. But in, in any event, he also left Chabad. He didn't stay in Chabad either. He decided he needs to be on his own. And he um, is in this college scene in New York and composing songs, becoming a popular singing rabbi. And he starts to record eventually. 1959, he records his first song. He rec- his effort, or first album, excuse me. He records a very famous album, Village Gate, in 1963. So he's becoming big on the New York music scene. And what happens is, is an interaction between him and Bob Dylan in the village, Greenwich Village of Manhattan, in 1966, eventually leads him to go to um, 
the Berkeley Folk Music, Folk Music Festival in 1966. And some sources attribute um, that Bob Dylan meeting to him starting to record music. That is incorrect because he was recording music from 1959. So it's, you can't give him the credit of starting him off as a musician. He was already a well-known and popular musician with recorded albums, several of them immensely popular albums already, several of them uh, before that. But once he goes to the Berkeley Folk Music Festival in 1966 and he sees what's going on in the 60s and the lost souls of Yiddishkeit in the hippie movement in the San Francisco area, he sees that that's his calling and he settles down in San Francisco and he becomes the rabbi of the hippies, the pioneer of Kirov, and the one who's going to draw these lost souls close and uh, back to Yiddishkeit, um, um, which is already his main career, building the House of Love and Prayer, which we'll examine in the next time we return to his life. I just want to end off with one anecdote that I heard from an eyewitness. Um, Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, his sister was married to Rabbi Simcha Zissel Lovavitz, Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, Mashkiach of the Mir's son, the one who put out all this farm of Rabbi Rucham. And... Um, a lot of the Alta mirrors and a lot of other Litvisha, um, Rashi Yeshiva, and you know, important personages in the Litvisha world would go upstate to one of the Borscht Belt hotels in the 1950s and 60s and 70s even for Pesach. That was the Pesach program in those days, the Borscht Belt hotels. They don't have the big fancy uh, hotels uh, programs that they have far out uh, in those days. They had simple uh, upstate New York and the Catskills uh, hotels. So one of these places, they had entertainment, and they didn't have Eighth Day, they didn't have any of these other popular entertainment, Lipa Schmelzer, they didn't have even uh, um, Jewish history sound bites, Yehudi Geber to come and speak as entertainment in those days at the Pesach program. They didn't have any of that, but they did have Shlomo Karlbach. He was the popular entertainment. He was the kosher entertainment that was brought to the hotel. And at this hotel was many altamirs, and and also Reb Schneer Cutler. Reb Schneer Cutler was at the hotel with his family, also for Pesach. And Rebetzin Rischel, who was known for speaking her mind and, and not being shy about it, she said something derogatory to Reb Shleimakavach at some point of of things that he would do. You know, he ended up being quite controversial, and the mainstream establishment uh, was wasn't happy with him. And, and he said to her, well, this is what I'm doing for Kal Yisrael. What have you done for Kal Yisrael? With, uh, you know, you, you, you cook good kefilta fish for your family. What did you do for Kal Yisrael? I'm trying to do for Kal Yisrael. That was his retort. It was a sharp retort. And of course, this was a very sharp exchange. But I think it encapsulates something, is that the yeshiva world, the, the establishment world, never gave up on him. He was so entrenched in the rabbinic world, so entrenched in the yeshiva world, and that's what bothered them so much. If he would have started off as some sort of outsider, then perhaps it wouldn't have made a big deal, wouldn't have been a big issue for the fact that he became a hippie rabbi, a singing rabbi, and doing everything that he did, and the gatherings that he had, and the interactions that he had with people from all different types of backgrounds. But the fact that he came from the yeshiva world, and a close Talmud of Rabbi Aaron, and the son of a rabbi, and so mainstream, 
And then he had become like that. So that, that was something that was simply unforgivable to have gone in such a different direction. So we'll pick it up from here next time. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. And of course, subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode and give a good rating to the podcast. Share with your friends and family. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.